Everybody, it's been a little while since I've uh, had the privilege to speak to you and be in front of you bringing uh, God's Word, so I'm excited to do that, and it's an honor for me to um, spend some time with you this morning. But um, before we get going this morning, I want to say two things. God is good, and God is sovereign. God is good, and God is sovereign. And it's going to be my privilege to show you just that in our passage today, in Genesis 41. But before we look at our passage, I want to read to you some lyrics from a song um, by Laura Story. It's called Blessings. So let me read to you the lyrics. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. All the while, you hear each spoken need, yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. All the while, you hear each desperate plea, I long that we'd have faith to believe. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing come through tears? What if thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Let's pray before we get into the Word. Lord, we thank you for um, this passage this morning. Father, we ask for understanding. Father, we ask for a love for your Word because there's so much in it that we need to learn, that we need to absorb, and that we need to apply to our lives. You are good and you are sovereign to us. Father, help us in our unbelief and our distrust of you. Father, we need you. Meet us now in this passage. Teach us, Father. Humble us. May we love you more because of your word this morning. We thank you for your goodness, faithfulness, and your sovereignty. We ask in your name. Amen. All right. Well, we've got a great story to dive into this morning. We're looking um, at Genesis 41 this morning. And to aid us in that journey, before we get started, I'm going to define for you God's sovereignty. We use that word a lot in church or you hear it in Christian lingo. I want to define for you what God's sovereignty means. And then what I want to do is point to you the perspective in which we're going to read Genesis 41. So I'm going to define our terms and then I'm going to give you the framework in which we're going to read our story this morning. So, let's define God's sovereignty. A.W. Pink, a highly regarded Reformed theologian, he defines God's sovereignty as this. He says, It is the supremacy of God, the kingship of God, the Godhood of God. Pink says, To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will, and the army of heaven, and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay his hand or say unto him, What are you doing? 
To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and in earth, so that none can defeat or thwart his plans or resist his will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, determining the course of dynasties as they please him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. In other words, God's sovereignty equals God's total 100% control over all creation, all creatures, all their actions, all the events and circumstances. I like to use a, a building illustration sometimes to describe this, uh, God's sovereignty. So in a bu- building illustration, God is the architect. He's the construction cue, crew. He's the occupant of the building. Why? Because God draws the plans of the building. He controls the construction process of the building. And then he uses and occupies the building for the purpose in which he created it. 100% total control. It's God's sovereignty. As for the perspective in which I want you to see Genesis 41 this morning, we're going to approach this text through Moses' eyes. Moses, as our author and narrator, he knows the beginning of the story. He knows the end of the story. So he's going to give us a big picture of what's going on, and he's going to put on display for us God's sovereignty. We need to see that God is in control every step of the way. And if you can pull up a slide, I've got a slide um, for us. Um, this, these are the sermon points. I'm going to give them to you now. This is the direction where we're going. I don't want to surprise you. This is where we're going. This is the direction. Um, I think it's going to be helpful as a reminder, especially if you're following along in the uh, sermon insert. But So these are the points we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to look at all of them. And we're going to look at some of the details in the story, but we've got 40 verses to cover, and it's good stuff, but we're going to mainly look at the big picture of what's going on here. So a little bit on the details, but mainly we're going to focus on the big picture of what God is doing in this story. So let's jump into looking at Genesis 40, verse 23, and then we're going to go all the way up to Genesis 41, verse 8. So if you're following along with your Bibles or your sermon inserts, um, let's start there. So in Genesis 40, verse 23, and this is the beginning of point one, Joseph forgotten and God's sovereignty. Let's read. The chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all his magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams. 
but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So what we have here is we've got the forgotten man of Joseph, and we also have Pharaoh's two dreams. And where God's sovereignty plays into that, we're going to see as we move along in this passage. So last week we left Joseph in Genesis 40. We left him in prison. So that's where he was. And right now, at the beginning of Genesis 41, he is still in prison. Moses tells us that two years have elapsed since Joseph was thought of or heard of by the cupbearer. It seems like he's been forgotten. You know, that's a long time to be in prison, a long time to be forgotten by somebody who you helped out a lot. We're going to see how he helped them out in just a little bit. But, you know, we don't know exactly how long Joseph was in prison, but what we do know is that when he, from the time he was sold into slavery around the age of 17 to about now when he's about to be remembered later on in our text, about 13 years have gone by. About 13 years of being a slave and being put into prison. That is part of Joseph's life. And now Joseph is about 30 years old. Joseph, Joseph's youth has basically been wasted away. So it seems. Joseph, is he's only been guilty of being the favorite son of Jacob. And yes, maybe a little arrogant at times. Sure he was when he was young. But he's only guilty of being the favorite son in his family and being an ethical man who did not want to have sex with another man's wife. That's what he's guilty of. It's payment, slavery, and being put into prison. You know, I often think of... Um, what would your feelings like be if you were in Joseph's position? Being who you are supposed to be in your family and doing what's right and ethical, what you should do, not, ha- not committing adultery, and then have this happen to you. Often think, what, w- what would it be like for us? Um, you know, I think, honestly, if I examine my heart and know myself well, I think I'd probably be a little bit better. And I know many of you, and I'm sure many of you would probably think and feel the same way. You know, trusting God after all of that, the betrayal, thrown into prison, being forgotten for many years, seeming as if there may be no hope in the horizon because he doesn't know the end of the story. I don't think trusting God after that would be very easy. Do you? I don't think so. If God is not in complete control, then it would seem like Joseph is not only forgotten by the cupbearer, but more importantly by God, the one whom he serves and the one whom he loves. To miss 13 birthdays, to miss Christmases for us, to miss family dinners, family functions, graduations, maybe in high school, college, maybe getting married, getting engaged, basically having your young adult and some of your teen years seemingly wiped away seemingly wiped away. That is a position that Joseph has been in. Wouldn't you maybe feel a little bit like you've been forgotten? Well, Moses tells us that Joseph has indeed been forgotten by the cupbearer, but he has not been forgotten by God. That's good for us too. And we're going to see that later on in our passage. But in these opening verses, it seems like it's an unfortunate thing that Pharaoh's cupbearer forgot about Joseph and all that Joseph did for the cupbearer in prison. But what's really going on here is that God is at work behind the scenes. You know, a good question to ask 
if you weren't here last Sunday and you missed Dave's sermon, you might ask, well, what did Joseph do for the cupbearer? What did he do? Joseph interpreted the dream, the cupbearer's dream. And then, he interp- and then the interpretation of that dream, it came true. Joseph interpreted the cupbearer's dream. And then that interpretation came true. The cupbearer was restored to his office next to the Pharaoh. And then the baker was also hanged. Joseph gave the cupbearer hope, he gave him encouragement, and he gave him a glimpse into the future. He gave him something to look forward to in the midst of his trials and his difficulties. He gave him hope. And all Joseph asked from him was, remember me when you're with the Pharaoh and tell the Pharaoh of my injustices. And we know that the cupbearer did not remember Joseph for two years. We asked the question, why? Well, Moses doesn't tell us the exact reason why. But what he does tell us leads us to the conclusion that God knows exactly what he's doing in the midst of this. He knows exactly what he's doing in the midst of Joseph's trials. But I will will give you one hint. Sometimes timing is everything. Sometimes God's timing, not ours, not Joseph's, is incredibly important. And sometimes we must be patient. So uh, so let's take a look at why this timing might be important. So what's happened so far? Pharaoh had two crazy dreams. Pharaoh dreamed about cannibalistic cows and cannibalistic grain. The dreams consisted of seven thin, hideous-looking cows devouring the seven plump cows. And we also have seven anemic ears of grain eating and devouring seven ripe ears of grain. These dreams are obviously bizarre. Um, But there's something important within these dreams that's important. It is that these two separate dreams are basically saying the exact same thing. And that's going to be important for us. We're going to see the text is going to tell us what's important about those dreams and that pairing of those dreams and why that's important. But neither Pharaoh nor his wise men or his magicians could interpret the dreams at all. And I know it seems like a small point, but you have to see that Pharaoh was considered to be a divine being among the Egyptian people. He was considered to be a god, and he couldn't interpret his dreams, nor his dream interpreters, his wise men. They couldn't interpret his dreams. That's an alarming, that's an alarming thing, especially when you have such bizarre dreams like Pharaoh has here. And the implications of them, as we're going to find out, are not necessarily good. And I think Pharaoh has inclination that he knows these dreams. There's something off about them. But I also want you to know that the people, these wise men and magicians, they had books in order to help interpret these dreams, to interpret the symbolism of these dreams. They had books. They wrote stuff about this. And they couldn't even, with the help of their books, interpret these dreams. So I asked you the question, what possibly could a little insignificant slave, prisoner, Hebrew man like Joseph have to possibly offer this divine Pharaoh, this God Pharaoh? What could Joseph have to offer? You're thinking to yourself that God is working behind the scenes and working his sovereign magic. You're right. That's exactly what he's doing. Because very shortly, Moses is going to reveal what God is doing behind the scenes. And he's going to begin that connection 
by showing us that Joseph is finally remembered. And Joseph was forgotten, but now he's going to be remembered. So together, let's look at verses 9 through 24. This is point number two if you're following along. Joseph remembered in God's sovereignty. Joseph remembered in God's sovereignty. Let's read these together. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me in the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. And when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us and gave us an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Behold, in my dream I was standing on the Nile of the banks, and seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the seven, the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were very, they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in the dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full and good, seven ears withered and thin, and blighted by the east wind, and sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Have you ever seen a movie uh, or a TV show where there's some sort of kid um, or other adult character kind of riding the bench for the whole season, or a character who's been stifled, neglected, beaten down, downcast, only to see that very same character rise up at an opportune moment. For me, when I thought of this, I thought of the movie The Sandlot. I, gr- I love that movie. I grew up with it. Um, I hope you've seen it. If you haven't, it's okay. I'm going to explain it to you. Well, there's a character um, named Scotty Smalls in the movie The Sandlot. And um, Smalls is a small, scrawny kid with no friends, moved to a new area, and he has no baseball skills whatsoever. And this movie's about baseball. Um, but later on in the movie, he finally gets a chance to prove his worth and prove his value to his friends. An opportunity arises when he's playing in the outfield and one of his friends hits a super high fly ball to him. And Smalls, he closes his eyes, sticks his hand up, and he's just hoping and praying by chance, by luck, or maybe by his own ability, he will catch this fly ball. And out of nowhere, he catches it, squeezes his mitt, pulls it back in, looks at his mitt, and he realizes that he had caught the ball. He had finally caught this ball. Small status at that moment 
a kid with no friends, no baseball skills, his status radically transformed. For after that catch, the kids around him, uh, some of the characters, Squints, yeah, yeah, the great Hambino, Tommy, his twin brother, who copies everything that Tommy says, and Benny the Jet Rodriguez, they welcomed him as one of their own, finally, as if they were kings on the baseball field. Well, this incredibly popular depiction of a zero being transformed into a hero, it seems like that's what's going on here in this, in this text. It seems like that's what's going on here. For Joseph is brought from the pit of prison to the presence of Pharaoh. But in fact, something else is actually going on. Joseph isn't relying on luck. He's not putting his hands up just hoping and praying and that he would win you know, Pharaoh's favor. He's not pulling himself up by his own bootstraps to gain favor, to gain freedom, to have this transformed status into being a free man. He's not relying on himself or by luck or by chance. Rather, he is patient and he relies on God's goodness and God's sovereignty. And it seems like in this passage that it should be describing the zero to hero aspect. For Joseph is now finally able to capitalize on his ability to interpret dreams because he was successful before interpreting dreams. So it seems like this would be a good time to do that. But instead, this is a reminder of God's power and God's control, not Joseph's power, not Joseph's control of the situation. You know, you would, you would think that Joseph might be a little cocky after his great experience interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Maybe put on a little show for Pharaoh, spice things up a little bit, and we know when he gives him his interpretation, gain favor in his eyes. Um, but that's not what he does. It's not what he does. Do you see, if Joseph was not able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, and if the interpretation, though, didn't satisfy Pharaoh, Pharaoh could have easily killed him or thrown him back in prison. So I think he might want to spice things up a little bit to try to make things seem a little bit more favorable for Pharaoh in this interpretation. I would think that he might want to put bells and whistles or do something to butter Pharaoh's bread. I, that would be me. But he didn't do that. He didn't do it at all. Why? There's something different about Joseph in this character that we read about in the Bible. Joseph, Joseph knew that God was in control of everything, including being forgotten, being enslaved, being put in prison, and being remembered. And he knew that it was God who was able to help him interpret dreams. He may not have known the final outcome of what was going to happen. He probably didn't. Like most of us don't, when we face trials, difficulties, disappointments in this life, which we all do. We all live in the same fallen world. But Joseph trusted God's goodness and God's sovereignty in times of difficulty, in times of disappointment, in times of persecution. For when Joseph was face to face with the most powerful man in the nation who was able to kill him or throw him back in prison, he shot straight with the Pharaoh. He did not mince his words whatsoever. This is what he said. He said, it is not in me. It is God who will give Pharaoh an answer. It is not in me. It is God who will give Pharaoh an answer. Joseph emphasized God and God's abilities, not his own. Because God was at the center 
of Joseph's response and Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Joseph knew that God was good, that God was sovereign, despite all the random acts of violence and persecution that happened to him. Seemingly random, because he didn't see the whole picture. But he trusted God in those difficulties, in those disappointments, in those trials. He knew that it is God who allowed him to be put in prison, to be enslaved. And he also knew that it was God who could get him out of prison and help him interpret Pharaoh's dream. Joseph got it. He got it. He knew that the trials of his life were mercies in disguise. Joseph knew that the trials of his life were mercies in disguise. We see that incredibly clear in Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. My question is to you. Do you get it? Do you? In life, in all of life's circumstances, in good times and in bad times, in disappointment and in times where you're happy and things are going well, do you trust God that he knows what he's doing? Do you trust God when you experience the hardships, that God knows what he's doing, that his plan is best, which sometimes includes those trials, those disappointments, those hardships? Do you trust God? It's not an easy thing. I oftentimes know that I don't do that myself very well. Do you trust that he's orchestrating all the events in your life? All events in your life. Not just the good. Not just when you think he's answered your prayers. But all the events. Do you trust God in his plan for your life? Church, we need to be challenged to think about that more often and implications that come with that because it has a lot to do with our hard attitude when we experience difficulties in this life. We trust God or we don't trust God. We rely on him or we don't rely on him. We pray to God and ask for his help and his patience and his love, or we don't pray to God in those times. It's not really an in-between. Because you know as well as I do that in this life, with all the difficulties and trials that come, we often think about our wants, our desires, our children, our children wants, desires, their athletic activities, their sports, their school activities, their academics. We think about relationships. We think about our job, our employment, um, contract renewal. We focus on um, getting raises, getting married, having the relationships that we want. We focus a lot of times on those and we leave God out, not trusting God in God's timing. He knows what's best, and he's orchestrating things in our lives. I know it's redundant, but I'll say it anyway. This is a newsflash. Life isn't about you. It's not about you. It's not about you. It is about God and God's glory, and that is not an easy thing for us to get and to understand. It's not about you. It's not about me. Is about God and God's glory. And when you start to apply that in your life, you will see God move in ways you've never seen him move, and you will love him and enjoy him in ways you've not loved him or enjoyed him. He will take you deep, and he will take you far. Are you ready to go there is my question.
because God is willing to take you there. But you need to trust him. I'm going to tell you that we often get this wrong. We do. I'm human. You're human. We get this wrong. But you know what? God is good to us. He's gracious to us. He's faithful to us. And he helps us each step of the way like he's been helping Joseph. He will sustain you in the times of trials. He will love you and he will provide for you. Especially for those of us who are feeble-minded and forgetful. I am one of those people. Um, You know, but even if you don't see God moving in your own life, I hope you see God moving in the life of Joseph here in this text. Because he is moving. And God is real. And God is powerful. And he is sovereign and in control. We're going to look at verses 25 through 40. And this is going to be point number three. We're going to see Joseph exalted, and we're also going to see God's sovereignty. Joseph exalted, and God's sovereignty. Please read with me, verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good years are seven years, and the dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after them there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a wise and discerning man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to anoint the overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to the servants, Can we find a man Can we find a man like this, and whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you, Joseph. Talk about transformation here. Radical transformation. Joseph went from being a prisoner in a muddy pit, maybe not hope of necessarily getting out, to being second in command of all of Egypt, the whole entire nation. From prison, enemy of the state, to controlling now just about everything except Pharaoh. Um, I think in our day and age, I gave this example um, in the teen class earlier, it's almost like Joseph is in Guantanamo Bay and then brought to be vice president in a matter of seconds like that. Radical transformation. Do you see what God's doing here in this text? Do you see God's timing, his sovereign plan at work 
Do you see why it's important for Joseph to be forgotten, to be enslaved, to be thrown in prison, to be betrayed, which he was by his brothers? Talk about God's sovereignty and goodness being used. Talk about this situation, this trial being used as mercy, as a mercy in disguise. That is what is going on here. Moses puts on display God's sovereignty. God allowed Joseph to be put in prison. God allowed the cupbearer and the baker to also be put in prison. God orchestrated the fulfillment of the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. God allowed Joseph to be forgotten after the cupbearer was set free and placed next to the Pharaoh. God orchestrated the cupbearer's remembrance of Joseph's kindness and him interpreting his dream and giving him hope. God gave Joseph the ability to accurately interpret Pharaoh's dream. God gave Joseph favor in the eyes of Pharaoh. And God exalted Joseph to the right hand of Pharaoh. God not only restores Joseph to the state of being a free man, but he lifts him up in honor to the right hand of power and glory in Egypt. Do you see that this is exactly the same thing that happens with the person in Jesus Christ whom you and I serve, worship, and love? It's the exact same thing that happens to Jesus Christ. Jesus was betrayed like Joseph. Jesus was sold for silver like Joseph. Jesus was wrongfully thrown in prison like Joseph. But Joseph was also loved by his father like Joseph was. And Jesus prophesied of his own exaltation, just like Joseph did in his dreams. And finally, Joseph was exalted to the right hand of power, which points us to the final exaltation of Jesus Christ being placed at the right hand of all power and all glory, at the right hand of the Father. Moses is showing us here in this text that Joseph is a type of Christ. Joseph, as a type of Christ, who experienced suffering and exaltation, is a biblical character who points us to the fullest expression of suffering and of exaltation, which is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. Joseph suffered much. He was enslaved, he was thrown in prison, he was betrayed. But you know what? Jesus, our Lord and Savior, he suffered more than any, anyone can imagine, way more than Joseph. Because he took on your deepest and your darkest, your most vile, your most sinister, evil, once desires and sins. The things that you don't talk about, the things that you don't even want, think about or say to anybody, he took on all of those things. He took on all of those things for God's people in the past, in the present, and he takes them on for those of God's people in the future. That is our Lord and Savior. He took those things on on the cross. Jesus, the Creator, the King, the Lord of Lords, he sweat blood in the garden. He was shredded by razor-sharp whips. He was spit on. He was mocked. 
he was nailed to a cross to suffocate to death for you and for me. That is the Lord that we serve, that we love. That is what he went through. And he went through that and he did that lovingly and graciously so that we too would be exalted to the right hand of the Most High, which is God the Father, like Jesus and like Joseph. People, when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are exalted to the right hand of the Most High. You are exalted to the right hand of power and of glory. You then have a relationship with the most powerful being in the universe. And you know what? He entrusts to you the work of the kingdom like Pharaoh did to Joseph at the end of our passage. And the work of the kingdom, which God is calling to us in this passage in Genesis 41, he's calling us to collect the truths of Scripture, much like Joseph did, collecting the grain before the famine came in Egypt. We are to collect the truths of Scripture, truths like God's goodness and God's sovereignty. Why? So that you have those embedded in your heart and your mind when you experience famines, difficulties in this life, spiritual famines, difficulties, trials, disappointments, whatever it may be, so that you have that. You have those things to rely on calls us to collect the truths of Scripture, God's goodness and God's sovereignty. And he tells us that we are then to store them up on our hearts and minds. We are to think of them often. We are to be reminded of them in our passage this morning, to absorb them, talk about them with your children, with your friends. Process this after the sermon. Don't just turn the radio on right after. Process these and store these things in so that when you do experience famines, because you know what? We all will, and we all probably have already. We will have God's truth to be reminded of God's goodness and faithfulness, even when we don't see the final outcome. Because you know what? Trials will come in this life. Things aren't perfected just yet. But God is good, and God is sovereign to us. God wants us to be able to say, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. You, wherever you are, you fill in the blank, wherever the troubles or difficulties are. You meant, this for, you meant this for evil, but God meant this for good. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if, God, your healing comes through tears? What if thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know that you are near. What if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? Church, I'm going to be very straightforward with you. What if your trials in this life are his mercies in disguise? Let's think about that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are sovereign to us. This life is not easy. There's a lot of difficulties, a lot of disappointments, a lot of trials that we all experience, great and small. Father, we are hurting people, whether we are free to admit it or not. We need your love. We need to be reminded that you truly are good, that you know what you are doing all the time. 
Not some of the time, but all the time. Because you, Lord, are in control. You are sovereign. Brother, in the story that we read, it seemed that Joseph was forgotten. But in fact, you had something more important. You had timing in mind. So that Joseph would be remembered and exalted at the right time for your purposes. Father, you are orchestrating the events in our lives in the same way that you orchestrate things for Joseph. You have plans for us that we don't always see and understand. But you are true and you are good to us and you are sovereign. And you are allowing us to experience these things and be in the places, have relationships that we have to bring you glory and honor. And Father, we ask that you would help us to collect these truths of your goodness and sovereignty, that we might store them up, that we we might remember these truths in times of spiritual famines, physical famines, difficulties, trials. Father, so that we might have a heart that trusts you in those times. 